Thanks for joining me for Access U Time. Tom Williams. So before we jump into an interesting discussion uh, involving uh, President Trump's uh, nominee to the Supreme Court, we're also going to talk about political and electoral reforms that uh, people are talking about, including uh, abolishment, possible abolishment of the Electoral College. I want to get in uh, three comments from yesterday's discussion. These came in after the uh, program. We recall we talked about President Trump's executive order on uh, immigration and uh, refugees. Uh, here's Catherine. She says, I in the past have enjoyed traveling outside the United States. I'm now hesitant to plan any trips because of how I may be perceived in such places as Mexico, Germany, etc. I've never felt that I've had to hide the fact that I'm an American, but now I fear t- I do. Uh, I hope uh, people of other countries don't group all Americans into one group and think we're all like Trump, just as Trump has grouped together all Muslims. It's sad for me to ask more from strangers than I can expect from my president. No, we're not safer now that immigrants are banned. The decisions made by Trump are embarrassing and sad. I have friends from Iraq. How can you explain to them that their people are our allies, but we're not welcome to come to the United States? Don't you think that uh, would have made them a little upset with Americans? Thanks for that, uh, Catherine. Uh, here is a comment that's come to us from Stephen. Uh, Stephen says, the ban is misguided and absolutely not necessary. It's not evidence-driven. No immigrants from those countries have posed a threat. This executive order is an emotional gut reaction to a mythological concern. Violence is statistically more likely to be perpetrated by U.S. citizens than by immigrant refugees. Uh, see the Cato Institute report, he says. Particularly the nations in question. The deficiency that most politicians seem to suffer from is that they don't understand how to analyze data. They should study more statistics and science and less law. Uh, The fact that a percentage of the population favors the ban is irrelevant. We live in a republic, and the role of a republic is to apply the rule of law equally. With no demonstrated need for this ban, it smacks of religious and racial discrimination, which is illegal and immoral. That is uh, Stephen. Thanks for that, Stephen. And uh, this one I, I debated on whether to put it on. It's, uh, it's a little embarrassing because it's some praise, but uh, uh, it was, it was uh, sent to the station email, so I'll, I'll, uh, I'll give it. We'll try to live up to this. Uh, this is Rand. He says, uh, thank you for your exceptional discussion on, about the immigration ban. I'm amazed that you could do this in such a short time since the presidential edict. Your guests were all eminently qualified to speak on the subject and were articulate and informative. Your own preparation and your typically even-handed professional interviews produced a great discussion. Thank you. So, see, I'm a little embarrassed to put that on, but we'll try to live up to that rant. Thank you for those comments. Keep them coming to upraxis at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. One prominent theme of the recent election was a refrain that our political system is broken. The preferred fix of many Trump voters came in the person of now President Trump. Others, including some UPR listeners, are prescribing such reforms as abolishing the Electoral College, instituting term limits, and changing the redistricting process. Today on the program, by listener request, we'll talk about proposed political reforms. We're also going to talk about President Trump's nomination of Judge Neil Gorsuch to the U.S. Supreme Court and the potential looming confirmation fight ahead. And our guests uh, will include uh, Paul Cassell from University of Utah Law School. He's a former federal judge. And we have with us in studio right now Mike Lyons, Associate Professor of Political Science at Utah State University. Uh, Professor Lyons, thanks for coming in. Happy to be here, Tom. Welcome back to the uh, the program. Um, I, I wonder if you, uh, I don't know if you have a, a take on uh, yesterday's uh, topic. We could treat that briefly, the, uh, the immigration refugee ban. Well, uh, not one of your liter- uh, listeners mentioned that it's essentially political. And is it good public policy? Almost certainly not. Our foreign policy experts believe that actually it increased the likelihood of a terrorist attack against the United States because it increases uh, anger at the United States abroad and helps uh, organizations like ISIS recruit. And it is conceivable that someone aspiring to be a terrorist or potentially Uh, Someone who could be converted into being a terrorist was prevented from entering the country, but in the balance, it it probably hurt more than it helped, and it is President Trump just playing to the constituency that elected him, and um, it it shouldn't surprise people that much that he is following through on his campaign promises. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one of the things that's been pointed out, and I imagine for his followers, this is... This is Trump being true to his word. Right. And uh, 
I didn't expect that he would try to follow through on his campaign promises this aggressively. I expected that he would prove to be more of a moderate, and that may still prove to be the case down the road. Uh, we're at the beginning of the beginning of the beginning here, mm-hmm. and uh, the Republicans in Congress have yet to respond in any reasonably coherent way to many of these initiatives. We know almost nothing about the legal limits on executive orders at this point, and that's kind of a legal quagmire. So um, it's premature, I think, to draw too many conclusions about what direction things are likely to go. What uh, what about the Democrats? It's uh, you know there was a lot of rhetoric during the campaign that uh, Trump would go down to defeat uh, the Republicans would be in disarray. It, you know, shoes on the other foot now. It 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 has exposed a, a thin bench for the Democrats, hasn't it? And and especially some work to be done at the local level. I think the Democratic Party um, lost the election more than Trump won it. The Democratic Party has failed to advance new ideas for a long time now, and its key leaders are people not even of the baby boob generation, but older than that for the most part. And uh, the Democratic Party needs a fresh start, and the Democratic Party needs to make the case that government can make the quality of life in the United States better. And that's been their chief failing. You look at public opinion surveys, and people have lost faith in government. And I think the degree to which people have lost faith in government exceeds the degree to which government is actually dysfunctional. Not that there aren't dysfunctions. There are. But public disappointment in government has reached at least post-World War II record levels. And that's what elected Donald Trump, and that's the problem the Democratic Party has to address. Let's bring in uh, Paul Cassell. He's Ronald N. Boyce, uh, Presidential Professor of Criminal Law and University Distinguished Professor of Law at University of Utah. Uh, Professor Cassell, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. We appreciate you being with us. Uh, I want to introduce you to our guest in studio, Michael Lyons, Associate Professor of Political Science at Utah State University. Hello, Professor. Hi, Professor. How are you? Uh, I'm fine. We uh, we want to talk a bit about uh, the the uh, announcement, which just happened this week. President uh, Trump has selected uh, Judge Neil Gorsuch from the uh, Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, in in Denver to uh, to fill the the seat. Uh, uh, left vacant by the death of uh, Justice uh, Scalia. First of all, uh, Judge Cassell, um, I should point out that uh, you were a federal judge for, for about five years. I resigned that to go back to teaching. Uh, you Did you clerk for Justice Scalia? I did. When uh, he was on the D.C. Circuit, I was fortunate enough to work for him for a year, and then he helped me get my uh, clerkship uh, with Chief Justice Berger on the Supreme Court. So this is this is, and in fact, President Trump uh, uses. He had uh, Justice Scalia's uh, widow there. It, it, this has been on the minds of, uh, especially Republicans. That that's a reason they stated for uh, you know obstructing uh, Judge Garland. They did not want anyone except for a, a pretty strong conservative to replace uh, Justice Scalia, given that he was so influential on on the court. So tell us first of all, um, what what you think Justice Scalia uh, stood for. Well, Justice Scalia was an originalist. He believed that the Constitution ought to be interpreted consistently with its original meaning. It shouldn't be remade in the uh, mold of uh, whoever was reading it, and uh, that it was our fundamental charter. So uh, I I think uh, Judge Gorsuch is going to be a worthy successor to uh, Justice Scalia's uh, uh, position, and uh, very excited to see that he was nominated. I wonder if you could expand on this. With you, You hear the words originalist, textualist, um, Justice Scalia famously said the Constitution was dead, dead, dead. He pushed back against this idea of a living uh, document. Uh, in your mind, what does originalist textualist mean? Well, I think you've touched on a couple of things there already. Uh, the one question is, should we try to determine what the document meant when it was originally signed? And, and let's understand, the uh, Constitution was originally drafted uh, uh, in 1791 and thereabouts, uh, when you start talking about the Bill of Rights, uh, that of course has uh, uh, not only uh, extended the rights to American people, but it's been amended uh, a number of times, most importantly the 14th Amendment extending rights to the newly freed slaves and creating equal protection and due process principles. So there is a procedure in place for the 
constitution to live, if you will, or to change. It's, it requires an amendment. It requires uh, approval of the, of the political uh, 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 the political branch in Washington, and then of the citizens of the state. States, 38 states have to approve a constitutional amendment. And when you have someone who's on the Supreme Court that says, well, I don't want to follow that cumbersome process of a constitutional amendment. I simply want to change the Constitution to make it consistent with my views. I think that's the kind of thing that uh, concerned Justice Scalia, and I think that's the kind of thing that uh, Judge Gorsuch, if he's confirmed, will not approve. I've heard a lot of talk, been reading a lot of talk about uh, the reality is on a, on a court, you know, nine members on the court, there's persuasion that, you know, the justices seek to persuade each other, and it has to, you have to get five votes. Uh, sure. for for a ruling and so it and, and famously justice kennedy seems to be the swing vote and now people are talking about uh, perhaps uh, justice uh, gorsuch should he be confirmed would would uh, exert influence on justice kennedy well J- justice scalia had i think an outsized influence on the court simply by force of will and and, and force of intellect uh, his opinions were always brilliantly written and uh, i think they'll continue to live on even after his passing that's one of the reasons that I believe Judge Gorsuch was selected. He has a very powerful writing style, uh, very memorable turns of phrases that you'll see in his opinions. And so I think the hope is that uh, through his opinion writing, he'll have an outsized influence on the court. I think there also may be some hope, uh, at least among conservatives, that he will uh, be particularly influential with uh, Justice Kennedy, who, as you identified, is often a, viewed as a swing justice on the Supreme Court. Judge Gorsuch clerked for uh, Justice Kennedy, also clerked for Justice White, but the uh, upshot is that uh, I think conservatives hope that Judge Gorsuch will be able to uh, make arguments that uh, Justice Kennedy will find persuasive. Uh, Professor Lyons, I wonder what your take is on this selection, and uh, if you perhaps have a, a question for for. Uh Professor Cassell. Well, I think the confirmation of um, Justice Gorsuch is likely, and I think he clearly has excellent legal credentials. Uh, Quite frankly, I um, question the entire validity of the concept of of originalism um, and take the position that Cass Sunstein takes that really almost every justice in the Supreme Court is trying to adhere to the intentions of the people who wrote the Constitution and wrote some of the subsequent amendments, but the language is so murky and the context historically so different that there's a great deal of variation in terms of how that language should be seen and what the intentions Uh, are carried forward. And the Constitution was written, frankly, to preserve slavery, among other things. And the Equal Protection Clause was not written necessarily with the equal protection of men and women in mind. And yet one has to believe that the constitutional framers in the modern era might want the Equal Protection Clause to apply to men and women, women, and, and perhaps also to people with um, different sexual orientations, as in effect the Supreme Court has done in the gay marriage decision. So it's not quite as simple as some justices wanting to follow the framers' intent and to be originalists and, and others wanting to write a brand-new constitution Uh, I think the disputes are more over how that language can be carried forward into a context that is changed by 200 years of passage of time. Professor Cassell, what do you you think to those arguments? Well, it's uh, important to recognize that the 14th Amendment was, uh, along with the 15th and and others, was designed to abolish... uh, the institution of slavery, and so to to say that uh, originalism somehow equates with slavery, I think isn't isn't consistent with where the Constitution stands today. And and the problem when we start talking about well uh, moving things forward in the context of the the 21st century and so forth, if that becomes just an excuse for saying well I like this poli- particular political result, so I'm going to rule in this particular way, then we no longer have a rule of law in this country. What we have is a, a rule of, of justices or 
I guess to be more precise, a rule of five justices, because if they can get five go- votes, then they can enact their own uh, political views uh, and make those uh, the views uh, binding on the rest of the country. That's what the Constitution was designed to avoid, was to create uh, uh, politically accountable branches of government, for example, Congress and the, the president, who have to stand regularly for election. Supreme Court justices, of course, never do have to stand for election. They're appointed for life. And so... I think one of the unfortunate things that's happened over the last oh, 30 or 40 years in our country is, is Supreme Court uh, positions have become much more politicized uh, precisely because of the reasons that Professor Lyons has identified. Uh, I think if, uh, if the Supreme Court justices are going to decide what kinds of views they want to read into the Constitution, then voters say, well, wait a minute, I want one of, uh, I want one of the justices up there who, who represents my views. And then it becomes a political contest rather than a contest of who can be... Uh, who is the best jurist, who can be the most uh, impartial and, and, and fairest in resolving uh, disputes that come before the court. Uh, Professor Cassell, I wonder, uh, we just have you for another uh, couple of minutes. I wondered, uh, you know, getting out your crystal ball, what's the likely direction of the court with uh, the addition of, uh, if we assume that uh, Judge Gorsuch is confirmed, what's what's the likely direction of the court? Uh, sometimes there are surprises. Do you, do you anticipate surprises or, or a standard conservative tilt? Well, I don't know. Labels like conservative and liberal, I think, are, are sometimes misleading. I mean, Justice Scalia, some people say, well, he's a conservative, but actually, if you look at his record in an area that I'm very familiar with, criminal law issues, he has a very strong record of voting not just for law and order, uh, right-wing conservative positions, but uh, frequently uh, argued on behalf of defense interests. Uh, very famously, he was a very strong advocate for uh, the right to a jury trial and the right to confront uh, witnesses against a, a defendant. And so to say, uh, you know, what will uh, Judge Gorsuch, if confirmed, do? I, I mean, I think he's going to continue, uh, uh, he's going to continue uh, to take uh, an open-minded assessment of all these issues, just the way uh, Justice Scalia did. So there was uh, one law review article that tried to measure Scalia-ness uh, in terms of the various judges around the country, and, and uh, Judge Gorsuch uh, scored very high on that uh, ranking. And so I really don't see a lot of changes that would come from putting him on the court. I think he's going to be a judge in the mold of Justice Scalia, and uh, putting in a, a Gorsuch for Scalia I think will not change uh, the court in any significant way. As we look toward the uh, the confirmation fight, we don't know what the Democrats will, will do. All they could do, I think, is delay it. But uh, what... What are the key questions that uh, you would ask if you were a, a senator on the Judiciary Committee? Well, I would ask uh, Judge Gorsuch whether he would follow the law, even if it led to results that he didn't agree with. Uh, he uh, commented when he was uh, at the White House the other day, when, when nominated by President Trump, that uh, a judge who always agrees with the results he reaches is probably not a very good judge, because it's not the job of a judge to to say, well, do I want uh, Mr. X or, or Ms. Y to win this particular case? It's the job of the judge to uh, uh, follow the law wherever it leads. And so that would be, I think, the focus for me if I were uh, asking questions of Judge Gorsuch is, will he follow the law, faithfully follow the law, and apply it uh, regardless of, of his own uh, personal uh, political or other preferences? One last uh, the question, um, Professor Cassell. We were talking before we went on the air about uh, President Trump's uh, a flood of executive orders, and uh, since we have a law professor here, not not your particular area of emphasis, but um, what do you think the the limits are and should be of executive orders, and are those going to be get tested? I, I assume they're going to get tested in the courts in a more robust way now that there's such a flood of them coming out from President Trump. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of these will lead to litigation, but uh, the the key question about an executive order is uh, the Constitution allows the president to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. And so the question will be, are these orders executing the laws or thwarting the laws? I mean, one of the real contrasts, I think, between what President Trump has done and, and President Obama is President Obama frequently seemed to be issuing executive orders that were designed to thwart the will of Congress to, for example, say, well, I don't agree with this particular immigration law, so I'm going to issue an executive order that's contrary to that. The executive orders that President Trump has issued have all been designed, I think, uh, at least intended to strengthen the uh, laws that Congress has passed in immigration and other areas. So I think uh, the vast majority of President Trump's orders are going to be sustained. 
I don't want to speak broadly and say that every single one of them is appropriate. Certainly, uh, we've seen a few uh, problems, for example, with the rollout of the immigration order. But I think uh, in the main, the orders that he's issuing are going to be uh, found to be valid when they're challenged in court. Well, thank you very much, uh, Professor uh, Paul Cassell, Ronald N. Boyce, Presidential Scholar of Criminal, uh, Professor of Criminal Law and a University Distinguished Professor of Law at University of Utah. Uh, thanks so much. You bet. Nice being with you and Michael. And we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to uh, pivot to some questions that have been on the minds of UPR listeners uh, under the broad heading of uh, political and electoral reforms. Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, one prominent theme of the election was a refrain that our political system is broken. The preferred fix of uh, many Trump voters came in the person of now President Trump. Others are prescribing such reforms as abolishing the Electoral College, instituting term limits, changing the redistricting process. We'll be talking with uh, Mike Lyons, Associate Professor of Political Science at Utah State University, about all of these things and more. You can drive the discussion with your email to upraccess at gmail.com. More following the break. I'm Stephen Dubner on the next Freakonomics Radio, the revolution that is changing how we think about thinking. One of their great discoveries is that people don't make clean, clear choices between things. Michael Lewis on the mind-opening research of Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Join us Thursday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. I'm Amy Kobabe, news reporter at Utah Public Radio. As I've been working here for about a year and a half, I've really come to appreciate the passion you, our listeners, have for your communities. You're engaged. And I want to know, what stories would you like to hear? Is there a story that needs to be told? If you have a story, question, or comment, I'd love to hear from you. Please visit upr.org or call 1-800-826-1495. On social media, use the hashtag IamUPR. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Uh, if you have comments on uh, Judge Gorsuch, on the upcoming uh, possible confirmation fight, we'll have to see what Democrats do. We'd uh, love to hear from you and what, what you think. Also, the whole uh, Judge Garland uh, episode. I have friends whose uh, heads are still in the uh, state of explosion. They're still at the anger uh, stage. Uh, it, you maybe you want to comment on, on that. Um, and we're going to pivot to... Uh, as well to uh, political reforms. Uh, people are suggesting that we abolish the Electoral College. They've noted, as President Trump has noted, uh, is pushing back on, on this idea. But we, we know that uh, President Trump uh, lost the um, popular vote by almost uh, 3 million votes. Uh, you go back to the election of uh, George W. Bush, who lost the popular vote but won the Electoral College. And so some people are saying, well, let's just get rid of this anachronistic um, uh, political or, or constitutional element. Uh, some people are calling for term limits and uh, pointing, for example, to uh, Senator Orrin Hatch, who uh, is, I think, if he wins another term, he'd be in his 90s, um, and redistricting. Uh, people are pointing that out as well. We have an email that's come in talking about uh, talk about secession, and uh, so we'll read that uh, as as well. Uh, I want to, uh, before we make that pivot, uh, we have with us uh, Michael Lyons, who is Associate Professor of Political Science at Utah State University. Uh, I wonder if you could comment on this tit-for-tat that's been happening, at least, at least since Judge Bork. Um, and uh, both sides have been kind of ratcheting it up, and, and uh, the, the Judge Garland episode has ratcheted up to, uh, to new heights. And, uh, I don't know, dangerous territory? Yes, and I agree with Professor Cassell that there has been a politicization of the court, and it really did begin with the Bork nomination and was escalated very substantially last year by the Republicans' refusal to consider Garrick Marlin, or <laughs> Merrick Garland, excuse me. Um, and I believe it would be a mistake for the Democratic Party at this juncture to try to throw a roadblock up in the way of Justice Gorsuch. He clearly appears to be qualified unless something comes out in the hearings that uh, surprises people. I wouldn't waste political capital trying to stop this. I think the Democrats need to pick their fights more carefully. And this is a case where President Trump picks someone who does appear to be fully qualified. He is conservative. There's no question about that. But there are 
conservatives with superb credentials, and Justice Gorsuch appears to be one of them. Do you is I don't know. This didn't result in a you know in a lawsuit. I don't, I don't know where the where the limit is on this idea that the constitutional phrase advise and consent. The, the that's the Republicans pushed that to a to an extreme over the last year. Right, and this goes back to the problem with uh, interpreting original intent. What does advise and consent really mean? Does that mean the Republican Party can just uh, for 10 months or whatever it was refuse to consider a Supreme Court nominee? Um, I'm not a great political historian, but I don't think there's any clear precedent for that. There certainly isn't in post-World War II history. Uh, It would have been a different matter if the Republicans had held hearings examined his qualifications and determined that he wasn't qualified to serve on the court. And that has happened in the past and happened appropriately in a few cases. But simply refusing even to consider the nomination um, seems to me not to be a fulfillment of the Senate's constitutional obligation. Mm. But then what really is the intent there? Mm. I don't think it's clear. Mm. Now, the next step, some suggested that President Obama do, um, would, I think, take us fully into constitutional crisis, which is a president perhaps could say, uh, I have not received advice and consent back in a timely manner. I now consider Merrick Garland to be a justice in the Supreme Court. I've never heard uh, that possibility discussed, and it seems to me that it is clearly extra-constitutional. Mm. And frankly, sounds like it could be grounds for the instigation of impeachment investigation, Mm. frankly. Uh, But we are, we have entered an era of hyper-partisanship in which, and here again, I agree with Professor Cassell, um, where where the Constitution is being bent and remolded in ways, I think, uh, President Trump's executive orders could eventually uh, become clearly extra-constitutional if he stays on the the course he's on now. Uh, This is a dangerous time for the United States. And I personally have faith that the Madisonian design of the system, where you have the separation of institutions and a Congress that is independent of the president, will eventually right the ship here if President Trump steps too far out of line. Mm -hmm. Uh, Clearly, Republicans think that in certain respects, President Obama stepped out of line, and the Madisonian system uh, stepped in to thwart some things President Obama wanted. So I do have faith in the long-term staying power of the system, but this is a very difficult period. Mm -hmm. Uh, one of these uh, delicious political ironies that uh, happens so often, uh, Democrats are now discovering the, uh, the the joys of federalism. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> and, States' uh, rights. <laughs> uh, absolutely. And, and you see this, for example, in the area of uh, climate change policy, where a number of states have taken initiatives where the national government has not. Um, but But, you know, Republicans do remain in control of the majority of the states. And even when you norm that out to population, I think you find that Republicans at the state level uh, have political control over a larger total aggregation of population than the Democrats do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let me follow up with that. What it it seems like with conventional wisdom is Republicans paid attention to, to local and state races. Democrats uh, didn't. Um, Republicans, therefore, were able to to, uh, to have control of legislatures, governorships, at an increasing rate. Therefore, every 10 years, they get to redistrict, and then, and then that just increases their power. Well, they were very effective in the redistricting that occurred after the 2010 census. Um this has not been something that the the Republican Party has, over a period of decades, planned and implemented carefully. It is true that Newt Gingrich, in the early 1990s, 
um, put a lot of emphasis on the recruitment of candidates and the training of candidates on the state and local level. And this unquestionably strengthened the Republican Party and enabled the Republican Party to um, be more successful at the state and local level and in the House of Representatives. And I'm not aware of any comparable initiative within the Democratic Party, but I wouldn't accuse the Democratic Party of necessarily neglecting state and local races. Mm -hmm. There, There was a clear initiative in the early 1990s, and I think the Republicans are still reaping the fruit of that a little bit. Mm. Uh, so, so if it's not so much institutional or, or paying attention, what, why do you think Republicans have been so successful at the state level? Uh, Republicans have been successful at every level, and it's, I think, quite clearly because the American public believes that government is dysfunctional. The Democratic Party historically is associated with a more activist government than the Republicans is. Now, the line of demarcation isn't all that clear in some cases. Uh, President Trump is using the power of government quite aggressively uh, right now. Uh, but, But the Democratic Party is associated with activist government, and the American public just doesn't believe government can get anything right anymore. To some extent... The Republicans have created a self-fulfilling prophecy here. Mm. They have said government can't be trusted. We should reduce the scope and power of government. And then uh, a highly partisan uh, opposition to democratic initiatives and the escalation of partisanship in the Congress with Republicans throwing up a brick wall of opposition to almost everything President Obama wanted to do, it, it, it made their position a self-fulfilling prophecy. They said that government couldn't function, and they proved that government couldn't function by refusing to cooperate with President Obama. Mm-hmm. Right, self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, now, that's not the only dynamic that is present there. Um, there is an ideological polarization within the Congress that both political parties have participated in, And in my view, one of the chief things driving all this is primary elections. And I don't think primary elections receive nearly as much attention as they deserve to in public discourse about dysfunction within our government. In primary elections, you have a very small cohort of the electorate bothering to turn out. Uh, Primary elections, of course, give us party nominations for office. So they're a screening process. And when you have a very small cohort of voters turning out in primary elections, and this cohort is very ideological, the liberal wing of the Democratic Party, the conservative wing of the Republican Party, when you've got these people turning out, they produce candidates who are also highly polarized, and the public remains largely moderate, but a largely moderate public is faced over and over again with a choice between a liberal Democrat, maybe an ultra-liberal Democrat, and then a very highly conservative Republican, and um, the moderate, the middle, winds up being forgotten. Hmm. So if I were going to reform things, I think primary elections would be the first thing I would look at, and there has been interest uh, within the ranks of scholars and practicing politicians in trying to deal with some of the problems primary elections create. The campaign finance system reinforces all this also. People who donate money to political campaigns, by and large, don't come from the center. They come from the far left or the far right or from vested economic interests, and and that intensifies the level of partisanship and ideological division we see Throughout our system of government, it's not just the Congress, it's the entire system of government. If you just joined us, we're talking about political and electoral reforms. Uh, There is, I think, a a consensus the system is broken, or something is broken, Uh, the the, the, uh, system is not working. Um, And uh, so a lot of people voted for now President uh, Trump, uh, saying in the person of Trump, uh, a a kind of a populist appeal there, that he could get things uh, going. 
or at least blow up the system. We could get uh, something new out of out of the ashes. Um, others are are, uh, are proposing specific uh, reforms, uh, such as abolishing the electoral college, uh, re- reforming redistricting, uh, term limits. Uh, and Professor Lyons has just talked about uh, primaries. I want you to follow up on that. What what are some fixes that people are proposing for for primaries? Well, um, you could restore the power of party leaders to choose party candidates. Now, exactly how you define who a party leader is, where you draw the circle, is an open question. And nominations used to be drawn up in uh, metaphorical smoke-filled rooms by party committees. Uh, There was a lot of cronyism. There was corruption. It gave party leaders a degree of control over decision-making that sometimes led to favoritism. There were a number of problems that could kind of be grouped under the rubric of corruption that came out of a system in which top party leaders had the power to control the entire party ticket running for office. But in the balance is what we have today superior? And I would argue probably not. Might there be some hybrid system out there or some system that hasn't been implemented anywhere? Yes. Um, But the norm around the world is that the position of party leader is a meaningful one that endows upon that leader a measure of control over who runs on the party ticket. And we've lost that in the United States. Um, And the demise of party leadership and the demise of party coherence uh, is a serious concern of many scholars. And if people are interested in reading more about this, I would turn their attention to an article called How American Politics Went Insane, which is written about the decline of top-down party control in our system and the diminishing role that highly experienced and generally pragmatic leaders have within the political parties and with the system overall. Uh, The proposals that have populist origins, term limits, Generally, this drive to empower the people, remove power from the hands of the professional political class, and transfer that power directly to the people, by and large, this general train of logic has little support among scholars, and it's what we have tried to do over the last 40 years. And in the view of many, it's actually making things worse. So the populist cure is worse than the disease, Mm. in the view of many. You mentioned term limits, and that's uh, something that some of our listeners have wanted us to talk about. So let's talk about that, and then we'll take a break. So uh, the argument is uh, term limits, uh, whatever the limit is, uh, you'd get an infusion of new blood, a continual infusion of new blood. You you wouldn't have an Orrin Hatch, uh, a relatively young Orrin Hatch, going to Washington and then staying until he's well into his 90s if, he, if he's reelected. Um, and and uh, the, this turnover, you get new ideas and uh, and and you kind of scrape away the, you know, the, the coruscation in the, in the institution. Right, and I, I understand the appeal of that, um, but new ideas are not necessarily better ideas. And I would ask anyone who advocates this to compare the track record of veteran members of the Senate or the House, uh, John McCain, Lindsey Graham, Orrin Hatch, compare their accomplishments and their records and their positions with the comparable records and positions of people like Mike Lee and Ted Cruz and the other fresh faces. Uh, By and large, again, scholars do not think that people newly elected to office are, as a general rule, particularly effective. And it perplexes me that people will look at, say, uh, the legal profession or the medical profession or higher education and 
believe that experience and knowledge acquired over years on the job are important. And when people go out to select a brain surgeon, they don't want someone who just graduated yesterday from medical school. Generally, they look for someone who has a proven track record, who uh, has demonstrated expertise over a period of time. And I do not understand why people would seek that in other professions and not think that the political profession works the same way. There's a very idealistic and I would argue naive belief out there that fresh faces and you know, populist leaders who are closely tied to the people are somehow going to be superior to experienced and very often pragmatic leaders who accomplish things. Um, one argument about term limits that I think is true, but it's hard to explain to people, is that term limits would result in a massive transfer of power to unelected people who work in government agencies. They are doing most of the day-in, day-out decision-making in government. A lot of laws are drafted in very vague terms, and there's a lot of budgetary discretion that is a necessity. And so day-to-day -day governance is a little bit of a wrestling match between independent agency professionals who believe they understand what good policies are and Congress trying to bring these agency professionals under control. Control by Congress depends upon longevity in Congress, which allows one to develop an understanding of agency operations. The saying is, where the bodies are buried. Frequent rotation in the Congress would release agencies from a high level of congressional scrutiny and by most accounts give them far, far more independence. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing in my view. I work in an agency. I relish my independence. But I think it is contrary to the desires of people who support term limits. I think their worst nightmare is unelected people working in agencies having more latitude to uh, make policy free of democratic control by legislatures. Let's uh, take a break. Uh, we do have with us uh, Michael Lyons, Associate Professor of Political Science at Utah State University. We're talking about political and electoral reforms. Uh, we would love to hear from you. What do you think? If you agree the system is broken, what's your fix? What would you like to see happen? 800-826-1495 is the uh, toll-free number, 800-826-1495. Or you can reach us to our email, upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. When we come back, we'll have an email from Ted in Logan. Uh, he is uh, talking about uh, some talk. You get this from time to time, but it's kind of ramped up these days of uh, secession. He, he finds that, that talk dangerous. And we'll get to Electoral College. Uh, that's uh, one that I've heard from, uh, from listeners the most. Uh, why don't we abolish this uh, anachronistic uh, institution? We'll talk about those uh, two things when we come back following this break. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll immerse ourselves in the feminine side of a quintessential American musical style, jazz. But these female jazz vocalists are from all over. Good night, close your eyes and just sleep tight. I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join me for Women of Jazz, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. I'm completely out of my league here, you know. I, I wasn't like these people. I didn't know who Nietzsche was. I'd never heard of Lou Reed. I certainly didn't know who Andy Warhol was. I'd never seen guys kissing before. I was from Beckenham. Join us for more true stories told live. Next time, leaving, searching for, and finding home. That's on the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. Join us Saturday night at 6 on Utah Public Radio. 
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We are talking about proposed electoral and political reforms. There's an appetite for something to be done to fix a broken system. Uh, A lot of Trump voters uh, feel that that has come in the person of now President uh, Trump. Uh, at least, uh, you know, throw a grenade in the works and uh, and then see what happens. Can't be any worse, I think, according to, to some uh, Trump voters. Uh, others are saying, including some UPR listeners, so this program is by listener request, uh, that uh, why don't we look at the Electoral College? Why don't we look at term limits? We've talked about that. Why don't we look at redistricting? And uh, so we've been talking about a few of these things with uh, Professor Mike Lyons from the Political Science Department at uh, Utah State University. Just one parting shot on term limits. Uh, when you know, And I'm... I personally have never really been in favor of term limits, and, and I've the, the example I've given is if the people of South Carolina want to reelect Strom Thurmond until he's dead as to the natural body, which and, and my my theory was at some point he became like El Cid, and they just he was dead, and they strapped him to his horse, uh, so to speak. Uh, but but uh, he ran against Harry Truman in 1948. I kept reminding myself that 1948, and then they kept reelecting him. But uh, Professor, you've articulated the the arguments against uh, term limits. Uh, let's go to um, an email from Ted. Ted and Logan. Ted says, I want to address the personally unnerving discussion of secession of parts of the United States, California, Texas, and so on. As is typical for me, I fall back into history to arrive at a plan for the future. Throughout the Civil War, the Union fought to quell insurrection in large part because there is no legal precedent, rule, or procedure for a political entity to leave the USA as established by this conflict, which murdered an estimated 620,000 Americans during the Civil War Trust. The only precedent for disunion is the federal government committing armed forces to a bilaterally costly and mutually heartbreaking conflict. Discussion about or calls on secession, flippant or otherwise, is at best merely reactionary and at worst dangerous, as there is absolutely no peaceful way for this political divorce to take place. I understand and embrace the frustration, confusion, and desire to act shared by so many people, but it's important to think about how our actions today will be viewed in a hundred years. I can only close with the thought that though our passions may have strained, if it should break our subtle bonds of affection, we are truly stronger together. Thank you for letting me share my opinion on this. That's uh, Ted in, in Logan. You, th- this is not a new thing, but I think secession talk has ramped up a little bit in the aftermath of, of this this election. And essentially, I agree with what uh, Ted wrote. Um, and I, I don't take these calls seriously at all. I don't think that it's, uh, you know, remotely possible. Uh, I guess my facetious response would be it depends upon which state, you know. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> Texas, good, good riddance to whatever I, I, I wouldn't yeah, be right, yeah. too disappointed <laughs> personally, right. but uh, yeah. no, th- this is not something I think that um, – really should be taken seriously. Uh, let's uh, make sure we get in. We just have about uh, uh, four minutes left. I want to make sure we talk about the Electoral College. Uh, we had uh, a couple people email me in the aftermath of the election saying, hey, let's talk about the Electoral College. And, of course, uh, pointing out that in, in the recent past, we've had two presidents elected without winning the popular vote. Right. And, uh, and, and so is this not an anachronism? The, the other point that people make is that uh, the Electoral College was set up to prevent their characterization, venal populists like President uh, Trump, and it didn't do its job in their view in this time around. Well, that's certainly, um, there's certainly a, a measure of truth in that. We don't exactly know what was on the framers' mind when they established the Electoral College. There are a number of theories floating around out there, and they may all have some validity. One theory was that it was designed really to prevent the uh, abolition of slavery and empowered southern states in comparison with what you would have had with a direct popular election at the time because in the uh, formula for representation in the Congress that ultimately establishes how many electoral votes a state gets, African Americans were counted as three-fifths of a white person, whereas in a direct popular election, they wouldn't have voted at all. And white votes in the northern states could have overpowered the southern states. But that's just one interpretation. Another interpretation is is the framers wanted the presidential selection process to be a somewhat aristocratic process in which something, uh, the analogy that people draw is the college of cardinals that select the pope. A third possibility is that they viewed the electoral college really as a nominating device 
and believed that there would be perpetual deadlocks in the Electoral College because there would be regional candidates and a clear division between regions, and that the House of Representatives ultimately would be the body to choose the president. Uh, it is certainly true that the Electoral College today is not operating as a college of cardinals and in no sense in the modern era is fulfilling expectations that the framers had in the 18th century. Uh, is it possible to do away with the Electoral College? It is exceedingly unlikely. To do away with it, you need a constitutional amendment. That requires approval by 38 states. That means 13 states can block any such amendment. It is very easy to point to 13 states that like the Electoral College just the way it is and are going to stand in the way of any amendment. Now, there is a movement, the National Popular Vote Movement, that has a plan that would circumvent the Electoral College, and quite a number of states have signed on to this movement. It's a compact between states, and in the compact, states agree that they will cast their electoral votes for the winner of the national popular vote, regardless of who wins the state popular vote. So, for example, if the compact had taken effect and California had cast its popular vote for Hillary Clinton, but Donald Trump had won the national popular vote, under the compact, California would have cast its electoral votes for Donald Trump. Once a sufficient number of states join this compact, if they ever do, um, then the compact will become binding and effectively the Electoral College will be circumvented. Whomever wins the popular vote will win the electoral votes of, more, of states with more than 270 electoral votes. I doubt that a sufficient number of states will join the compact. So far, the states that are involved are Democratic states. There is some reason to believe that the Electoral College favors the Republican Party. It's not terribly clear-cut, but that appears to be the net result of the Electoral College in partisan terms. And so it's highly questionable that Republican-oriented states are going to join the compact and enable the compact to... Uh, put together a block of 270 or more electoral votes. So I think we are very likely stuck with the Electoral College. Mm. Bad news for, for some people, I guess good news for others. Uh, we'll have to leave the discussion there. I'm sure we'll return to some of these issues on uh, future programs. And we uh, had with us earlier Paul Cassell, a University of Utah law professor, and we've had with us for the hour Michael Lyons, Associate Professor of Political Science at Utah State University. Professor, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, Tom. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org. bullseye because I like new and interesting and funny and cool things and I don't like to do the work to find those things. I'm Jesse Thorne. In the next Bullseye, I'll talk with Gloria calderon Kellett and Mike Royce. The two teamed up with Norman Lear to make a terrific new reboot of Lear's classic sitcom, One Day at a Time. On the next Bullseye, for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Join us this Saturday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio.